0: Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and welcome to Truth and Life Today with Dr. John Newfeld. John, over the next couple of weeks, we're going to be talking about Christmas. Yeah. And the importance of Christmas is obvious to us all, but, but you're going to share with us an interesting message. And tell me what it's about and what it's called.
1: It's called a well-researched Christmas, Okay. because I think we need that. I mean, there's so many myths, as you know, this time of year. Yeah. And uh, we need to you know, sort out what's mythology and what actually happened. I mean, what gave rise to Christmas um, so I, that's what we're gonna
0: do. Excellent. Excellent. Now we're gonna be starting in the book of Luke and yeah. Luke is the book You're gonna be focusing on the next couple of weeks. So we look forward to it So remember to join us right in just a moment with dr. John Newfelt here on truth and life today.
1: I Want to talk about having get this a well researched Christmas from the book of Luke And uh, let me explain why I'm saying this. You know, when it comes to Christmas, I have a love-hate relationship with Christmas. So let me tell you the good news first. Here's what I love. I love the fact that God entered the world, that God became a man, and this is a time of year in which we celebrate this stuff. I mean, you know, Isaiah says that people walking in darkness have seen a great light. And I live in, uh, in um, the lower mainland of British Columbia. And at Christmas time, we get about eight hours of daylight. It's usually rainy, it's clouded over. And it's about as gloomy as it's you're gonna find it. Even in the eight hours, it's a gloomy eight hours and then darkness settles in again. But everybody puts up these wonderful Christmas lights and it reminds me that in a world of darkness, God's light has already begun to shine. So I love some of those Christmas traditions. So what do I hate? I mean, you know, am I just a Grinch? Well, I am in some ways. I don't like the fact that we have made Christmas to be a larger celebration than Easter. I don't like that because it's just not theologically true. But here's something else I don't like at Christmas time. It seems like every single Christmas, when we go through the Christmas season, uh, either on television or on the internet, I mean, it's just always filled with all sorts of stuff that seem to indicate that that which we have received in our Bible might not be true about Jesus. And so we have people questioning the virgin birth, that people questioning whether or not the gospel accounts are genuinely true and so forth. And it leads a lot of people to doubt whether or not we're telling the true story. So that's why I've talked about having a well-researched Christmas. I want to give you a sense of certainty about what Christmas is all about. And if, you know, if you're an immigrant into uh, this country and you've never heard the Christmas account, let I me mean, encourage you to listen. I'm gonna read it to you from the book of Luke and make some comments as we go. I'm reading Luke 1, one to four. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us. It seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. Now, that's how the book of Luke begins. And you might listen to that and say, wow, I don't know what he's actually saying. So let me take it uh, through this uh, closely, just carefully, one word at a time. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us. So here's what Luke is saying. In the day that I'm writing this, there have been a great many people who have already written about the events of Jesus. Well, you might say, who were those people? And especially in our day, when we talk about other narratives about Jesus, and sometimes you'll hear people talking about the gospel of Thomas, and then they'll talk about the gospel of Mary Magdalene, and even the gospel of Judas Iscariot, and they'll say, do you know that the church has tried to suppress all of these different gospels? So, Let me help you through all of that. First of all, what we have in our Bible, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, four eyewitness accounts of the life of Jesus are exactly that, they're eyewitness accounts. Now, when you hear about these other accounts of the life of Jesus, to the most part, they are written in the fourth century, not in the first century. You know what I'm saying? These are eyewitness accounts and the other stuff that we have come along hundreds of years later. And they also reflect a philosophy that was called Gnosticism which didn't even exist at the time of Jesus. So we actually know intuitively that these other accounts are not historical accounts. They're philosophical accounts that try to redraft Jesus according to a philosophy that exists hundreds of years later. I'll give you an example of that. Let's say tomorrow you were to pick up a book called Abraham Lincoln Vampire Slayer. (laughs) Well, you wouldn't think when you pick that book up that you're actually talking about a real history of Abraham Lincoln. I mean, you have to go to historical sources that actually deal with the real Abraham Lincoln, not some you know, different philosophy that comes along years later. And that's what we have in the book of Luke. And that's what we have in the Bible. We have actually eyewitness accounts of the life of Jesus. Now, when Luke says, inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative, you might ask, well, what are those other narratives? Well, we do know that by the time that Luke writes, that the gospel of Mark had already been written. So that was already available at that time. It had come about about a decade earlier. And now Luke comes along and writes pretty much the same time as Matthew writes. So you think, well, there's only one narrative that's been there. And yet a great many uh, Bible scholars have noticed that when you look at Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and you've put them up beside one another. In a number of places, they're verbatim, which means that Matthew, Mark, and Luke must have used some written source material that was available to them. Now, I have a theory about that. I actually think that it was Matthew who kept notes of the life of Jesus, and he did it in Aramaic, and these were well-distributed among the disciples. So what you actually have when Luke says inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative, I think he means the eyewitness notes that were taken by the disciples themselves. So that's what he's relying on when he researches the life of Jesus. And then he says, many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us. So he's saying the people that gave eyewitness accounts helped us to understand that. And then he says, and it seemed good to me having followed all things closely to write an orderly account. So Luke is identifying himself as a historical researcher. He's looking at written records of eyewitnesses and interviewing eyewitnesses as well. And this is what the book of Luke is all about. It's based upon the way in which every historian does research. This is the actual history of the life of Jesus. So in this series called A, you know, a Well-Researched Christmas, um, I'm actually taking that from what Luke actually tells us. Uh, we know that Luke was probably the only Gentile to have ever written a book in the Bible. That makes it unique. Uh, Luke is not one of the 12 disciples of Jesus. However, he is a prophet. And we also know that he was directly under the leadership of the apostle Paul. And um, we know that um, he took the time and interviewed all of the disciples of Jesus. Um, We also assume that he interviewed Mary, the mother of Jesus. He also interviewed a number of other eyewitnesses and he writes an orderly account. I also noticed that in the beginning verses of the book of Luke, he says, I'm writing an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus. Now, we don't actually know anything about this man by the name of Theophilus. I mean, who was he? And in fact, the book is addressed to him. But it does say, most excellent Theophilus, here I am in verse four, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. Now, that word, taught in the Greek language is the word katakou and it's where we get our English word catechism from. Now I don't know who you are but maybe some of you who are listening to me had been to church when you were younger and you had received a catechism and a catechism is simply a technical word for instruction in the basics of the Christian faith. You've got to believe whoever Theophilus was, he has been instructed in the basics of the Christian faith. And now Luke is saying to him, I want to help you to understand whether or not the things that you have been taught are actually true. And I'm going to help you to understand that by doing a research among the eyewitnesses and putting them together in an orderly way. Now, just as a little side note, if Luke is writing this to Theophilus, you might say to yourself, well, maybe this is only a book to one person and it wasn't meant to be widely circulated. But as a matter of fact, there are a great many ancient books that were written either to a king or to a government official or to some well-known person, and it's addressed to that individual, but it's intended for a wider audience. And I think that's what we have here. Whoever, Whoever Theophilus was, Luke writes to him, but as he writes to him, he's also letting all of us know that this is intended for the widest audience possible, a well-researched Christmas. Okay, so having set the stage for what Luke is about to re, uh, to write, let's begin to read, and I'm reading now from Luke chapter one and verse five. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, I'll stop there. See, a historian will normally tell you when it was that something was written. Well, in the time when Luke was writing, I mean, we didn't have the dating system we have today. And so you usually dated things by whoever was a ruler. And here we have the days of King Herod, king of Judea. Uh, We know from history that Herod died in the year 4 BC. And if that sounds strange to you, that Jesus was born either in 5 or 4 BC, that is four years before Christ, Christ was born. Well, it's simply because our dating system has a couple of mistakes in it. Um, However, the Bible doesn't say anything other than that it happened in the days of King Herod and most likely at the very end of his reign, and Luke says at that time there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah and he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron and her name was Elizabeth. Now again there's a lot of details here that the modern writer reader might have difficulty understanding so let me take you through that. There was a priest by the name of Zechariah all priests came from one tribe in Israel it was the tribe of Levi. And this person, this priest named Zechariah belonged to the division of Abijah. We know from historians of that day, and here I mean a Jewish historian by the name of Josephus, we know that there were 24 divisions of priests and that there were about 18 to 20,000 priests in Israel during that time. It's a lot of priests. So you get all of these priests and you put them into 24 different groups And then these 24 different groups, each group of priests would serve at the temple for uh, two weeks a year. So that makes 48 weeks, and then the rest of the weeks would have been there for the Jewish high days, which included Passover. So we know that each division of the priests would have served twice a year in Jerusalem. So it just happened to be that this priest by the name of Zechariah, his division was on that week in Jerusalem, one of two weeks. He has a wife by the name of Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, says Luke, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statues of the Lord. That is, according to the Old Testament, they were faithful to the law of God and faithful to the God of Israel. But then Luke adds, but they had no child because Elizabeth was barren and both were advanced in years. Now, in the day in which Luke is writing, to be childless was considered by a lot of people to be a curse from God. The Bible doesn't say it's a curse from God, but a lot of people thought that, and I have no doubt that this man, Zechariah, and his wife, Elizabeth, uh, would have been praying for all of their lives, God grant us a child, but they never had one. And then Elizabeth reaches the age of where she's not able to have children anymore. She's got to menopause and beyond. And it seems like the the dream is gone. God's never gonna give him a child. And then we come to verse eight. And while they were serving, and while he was serving as priest before God, when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, it says, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And to make a long story short, because there were so many priests, every one of the priests would once in his lifetime be chosen by lot, that is like a casting of a dice. And he would be chosen once in his lifetime to enter into the holy place, not the holy of holies, but the holy place in the temple. He would be called upon to burn incense before the altar of God and to pray for God's people. This was considered the greatest honor that a priest would have in his lifetime. This was Zechariah's day. This was gonna be a day for him unlike any other day. Only thing is, Zechariah didn't know how unique and extraordinary this day was. Luke who has researched it says, listen to this. I'm about to tell you how Christmas begins. I wonder if you've ever been in an empty room and you thought you were there all alone, and maybe it's a large room, and then suddenly you realize somebody's been standing there the whole time. You know, it frightens you half to death. I want you to think about what happened to Zechariah in that manner. He's entered into this place called the, the Holy Place, and the Articles of God are there, and he is burning incense and he's chanting prayers for God's people. Verse 11 says, and there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. Zechariah was troubled when he saw him and fear fell upon him. Yeah, that makes sense. But the angel said to him, do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son and you shall call his name John. It's it's a fascinating thing for the angel to say, your prayer has been heard. I don't know whether or not Zechariah went into the temple and at that moment when he was supposed to be praying for all of God's people, he took an opportunity to pray uniquely for that one seemingly dead prayer in his life. God, could you still visit us and give us a son? Suddenly, there's an angel standing there. And when you read about angels in the Bible, by the way, they are, you know, they're not the meek and mild things that we see depicted in the movies. They are powerful, mighty warriors. And this angel stands before him, shocks him half to death, and he gives him an announcement God has never stopped listening to your prayers. And then it says, I'm reading verse 14 You will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. You know, in other words, it's not just going to be you and Elizabeth that are glad about this and, you know, your close friends and family. Many. In fact, it's going to be a larger group that will be rejoicing than you had ever imagined. So by this time, Zechariah is wondering what's going on. And it says, for he will be great before the Lord. He must not drink wine or strong drink and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb and he will turn the children of Israel to the Lord their God and he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. Now there's a lot in that little paragraph there. But Zechariah, because he's a priest and had known the Old Testament extremely well, would have known exactly what was being told him. See, in the Old Testament, there is this this expectation that we find. You know, from the very beginning of the Old Testament, this idea that sin, which seems to have dominion over the whole human race, we're all, born into sin, David said in sin did my mother conceive me, yet there's this hope that a great deliverer will come who will defeat Satan, he is the Messiah, he will rule on David's throne, rule over the whole earth, Satan will be defeated, and God's people will have their sins forgiven, and they will be accepted in the presence of God. I mean, it's the hope of the ages, it's it's what people long for, and as the Old Testament comes to an end, 400 years before this incident that's described in the book of Luke. When it comes to an end, it tells us that right before the Messiah comes, a figure will come like the great Jewish prophet Elijah, and he will make the entire nation of Israel ready for the coming of the Messiah. Zechariah this day in the temple is being told that your son will be born of your wife who is way into menopause, you're both old, but your son will be the very figure that paves the way for the coming of the Messiah. This will be the most important moment in the history of the world. And Zechariah said to the angel, and I'm reading now from verse 18 and following, how shall I know this? For I'm an old man and my wife is advanced in years. And the angel answered him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God. That is, I'm one of God's mightiest generals. And I was sent to speak to you and bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day these things take place because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. The people were waiting for Zechariah. Remember there's everyone gathered for the hour of prayer in the afternoon towards the evening. And they wondered at his delay in the temple. And when he came out, he was unable to speak to them and they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple and he kept making signs to them and remained mute. And when his time of service was ended, he went to his home. After these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived and for five months, she kept herself hidden saying, thus the Lord has done for me that in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among the people. It's a beautiful line here. Elizabeth, who becomes pregnant says, God has taken away my shame. You know, in essence, that's what the entire Christmas story is all about. God has taken away our shame. It lost in sin, lost in rebellion. You know, I mean, if you think about all the evidence of sin in the world, from wars to basic human selfishness, to a refusal to thank God for everything that we have from his hand, and ignorance of the ways of God, all of that is called sin. It's breaking God's law. That's the reproach of any people. The Bible says that sin is a reproach to a nation. When we ignore God, the entire nation falls into something called shame. Elizabeth says, I've lived my life in shame. I know what shame looks like. I've become an old woman and among my people, I'm the only one that have a child. An announcement comes to her, God has taken away your shame. Now, in in terms of Zechariah, he had difficulty believing and God gives him a sign. A sign is you're going to be unable to speak. And so because Zechariah uttered doubt about what was about to happen, God says it's better for you not to talk at all until all of this happens. So you can imagine on the day when the worshipers were gathered and this old priest enters his once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to burn incense in the temple and to pray for the people. He's supposed to come out. And at the end of that time, he was supposed to lift up his hands and offer a prayer of blessing for all of God's people. But instead of doing that, he comes out and all he can do is make signs and he moves his mouth and he can't speak. And everyone knows something significant happened while that old man was in there. And then everyone just goes home and and Elizabeth becomes pregnant by her husband. And Luke is telling us, look, I researched all of this and this is the beginning of Christmas. Christmas began when God took the initiative and performed a miracle. That's why we have Christmas today.
0: Well, welcome back to Truth and Life Today with Dr. John Newfeld. John, thanks for your message today. Um While you're talking, I was thinking about, you know, we really do struggle with the difference between fact and fiction. Uh, when it comes to the Christmas story. And it comes from all different types of uh, voices and mediums, our confusion over what's secular and what's what's true according to the Bible. Uh, Tell us about this fact and fiction. Why is it so important that you do this message?
1: Yeah, I think because I'm usually disturbed at this time of year, because you know, some television network is going to do a thing about who is the real Jesus. And they're gonna work with us to understand, I mean, where does the historical evidence actually lead us? and so much of that is based on you know pseudo intellectualism which really doesn't deal with the eyewitness accounts i don't know ben why it is that in almost no in every other area in which we talk about history we say that eyewitness accounts take precedence over everything else yeah. except in the terms of christmas because i don't know is don't we want jesus as the son of god or whatever it is but there's such a bias against the biblical accounts that I think it's time for us to to come to terms with their accuracy and why we should trust it.
0: Yeah, and I think that's important. It's a great challenge even today through this Christmas season. Let's discover who the real Jesus is and, and, and how someone like Luke uh, points out so much of the evidence of who he is, so so it's critically important. So, thanks, John, for today's message, and remember, join us next week as John continues this series right here on Truth and Life today.